Greetings friends, I'm Will Nicholas from Never Odd or Even and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast exploring faith and fiction. Deep Space Nine. It's a wonderful reflective moment. Flame the dark. True salt wave. Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. What's going on? Why is this being highlighted? That itself is another interesting question, isn't it? I think I'm starting to get why this science fiction thing is uh, <laughs> uh, is so attractive. You'll, you'll make a sci-fi fan out of me yet. G'day everyone and welcome to the Deep Faith Nine podcast. This is Will Nicholas and uh, today we're going to be looking at the episode The House of Quark, uh, which is episode three of season three. Uh, The synopsis, Quark is forced to marry a Klingon widow after he takes credit for the accidental death of her husband, the head of a powerful Klingon house. Whilst in the B story we have Uh, Keiko being forced to close the school due to a lack of children uh, because of the Dominion threat to the station uh, and Miles O'Brien attempting to um, make her life um, better by uh, creating a sense of meaning or purpose for her on the station. I'm joined today by um, Niall Mackay. Great to have you on the podcast again, Niall. Thanks so much, Will. It's great to be here for one of my absolute favorite episode the house of quark well let's uh get straight into it this is of course a ferengi episode but also a klingon episode we get to meet chancellor galron with the big eyes uh who we've seen um, before in next generation uh looking forward to um to, to some of that as well as our uh, our b story uh what um things have jumped out most for you in this episode now uh there's lots of things as i said it's one of my favorite um episodes there's lots of coplas which is good but even better when applied to uh, a ferengi uh there's a rule of acquisition that's not a rule of acquisition which we'll get to later um quark with a batlev is amazing um and and, and i've always liked it for those kind of superficial ferengi doing quirky things kind of level um, but when you, I was re-watching it for today, I was amazed at how much sort of uh, Christological, theological um, um, sort of themes are in there that, that, that you wouldn't usually expect uh, in an episode like this, which is almost a throwaway humorous sort of episode. Um, that was good. There's a lot in there about uh, Keiko and Miles, um, uh, a very human relationship. And in this case, they are humans. Um, but that's worth discussing. But before we jump into the episode, I did want to say, and I haven't done an online shout-out, so I'll do it within the podcast. Uh, I've been enjoying uh, your Voyager podcast with uh, Elizabeth and Old Man Cullen. It's been great, uh, and it's much better than the one done by uh, the the cast, um, uh, Tom Paris and Harry Kim, or their respective actors. Um, I felt it very self-indulgent and yours is much better. So I don't know if anyone agrees with me, but that's that's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. Oh, it's always good to get feedback, so that's that's great. And I particularly loved um, your episode with Robin last week about home and homecoming and what makes a home. And I haven't said this to Robin yet, and I should, uh, but he was particularly insightfully theological, which I thought was great. 
Um, so I really recommend people, if you haven't listened or you only listen every now and then, uh, to go back and listen to that one about Home and Homecoming. It was really Deep Space Nine, Season 3, Episode 2, I believe. That's correct, yeah. Look, and just on that, um, there have been a bit of a shift uh, in the location or, or the way that the podcasts are listed at the moment. Um, so if you are looking for other podcasts, they are listed under Never Odd or even Faith and Fiction, and you'll find the Deep Faith Nine podcast listed there on your favourite podcast app, as well as the uh, Theological Voyages one um, there as well. So um, they're there. And if you are uh, having trouble finding them in that space, then you can always find them on oddrev.com where they're listed uh, and embedded into the website uh, or through the Neverold or even Facebook page. So lots of ways to find the, the podcasts that are happening from there. Yeah, and, and I'll have to say again that um, even as a fan and long-time subscriber and guest on the on the um, on the podcast, I still needed a bit of help finding it. So so don't 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 give up if you uh, have um, if you need to find it. Keep looking for Odd Rev. He's a nice guy, the Odd Rev. <laughs> Always having a bit of fun there. Um, well, um, let's um, let's jump into the the episode um, and have a bit of a uh, a talk about the themes that have come in um, today. Um, do you want to look deal with A or B first? Uh, let's start with A. It's a very good place to start, I guess. Everything you need in a good Star Trek episode right here. Um, uh, action, adventure, bar fights, knife fights, abductions, beam outs, Klingons, you know, all the standards. Yeah, all stuff. that stuff is, is, is par for the course. But, but the way the story uh, is shaped is really... Uh, quite interesting, um, and there's lots of good themes. And Quark uh, surprises everyone, as he usually does in, in many episodes, with starting out as a very self-interested opportunist, um, showing glimmers of honour or depth beyond himself, and then uh, in the final scene with Rom, showing a bit more of his self-interest again. Um, and, and, and that's a nice arc, but the, the interaction with the Klingon Empire is such a... Uh, as my Year 11 English uh, teacher used to say, an oxymoron, uh, an incongruous juxtaposition. Two things are, are thrown up together as uh, um, uh, uh, Quark being the head of a Klingon house is, is, is humorous but, but insightful at the same time. So I love that. Absolutely. Um, so there's some, um, some interesting um, parts in this story that actually jump out. I really love that, as you said, that development in Quark, uh, that we're seeing that he's two dimensions of just being a, a, a an opportunistic capitalist uh, are now being um, broken open. And there's that particular scene uh, towards the end where he is with Rom uh, and he's, uh, he's almost talking himself into slash out of staying and fighting. Um, you know, he's he's having the conversation with Rom, who is typically not saying anything in reply. Um, but um, but what he's really doing is is having an internal or self conversation um, that actually allows him to come to a conclusion that is right for him. Yes, and and the way the 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 narrative structured it, even beyond the meeting with Rom and his escape and everything. Um, I think the conversation continues in his head till the very last moment as he comes rushing in. It's also well, well summed up uh, with uh, uh, Chancellor Galron, who, who in the end calls um, uh, him brave, calls Quark brave, 
um, which is fascinating. And, and it's unusual for a, a martial kind of race, if you like that, or or martial culture, if we want to translate it into human terms, where honor is is very important to acknowledge the the bravery of the weak or, or the, the the courage of the weak. Um, and often that doesn't happen in reality. Yep, and the 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 I guess the the paradigm of weakness and strength and how it expresses itself in different ways appears strongly in this episode as well, where where you know there's this conversation between Gurilka and and Quark about we've tried it your way now let me use my strengths let let's try it my way um, and and so um, whilst Quark will will potentially never win a battleth battle on his own uh, he he certainly is able to look through uh, filthy ledges and come up with um, with a different kind of battle strategy. And and at that point, and um, I think we're are we deep enough into the episode to start talking about theological, biblical kind of connections? Absolutely. Yep. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, at, at that point, you are, are tying into a, a number of different um, traditions, which appear in lots of different philosophical and literary works, but particularly um, with our knowledge and expertise, biblical ones. Um, and and the interesting. Th- thing is uh, that um, what what you get ca- the way the uh, Klingon society is characterized is far closer to a lot of uh, uh, older societies uh, and traditional societies or at least half of them um, there's a lot of research into the way that lots of societies throughout human history have been honor shame societies um, and the Klingon uh, society is very much an honor society they don't tend to have the the opposing uh, or the the counterbalancing shame society um, in Klingon culture, but in most uh, cultures in the real world, uh, each honor society is balanced, I guess, with a a shame culture at the same time. And the honor society or the honor culture tends to be a a male domain, a patriarchal kind of domain, and men have to protect honor, have to show honor, have to do all those kind of Klingon-y things, not lose honor. Uh, But the women in a society or the feminine are expected to protect shame um, and to hold shame at bay and not do things which would would be shameless for for their family. Um, and that's not seen. The shame side of things are not really seen uh, in a Klingon society. Uh, so when you get honor versus shame happening, you get a lot of tension going on. That's a long way of saying what Quark does by finding a way through, a way around, almost a sneaky way uh, to undo some of the honor um expectations within Klingon society is something that was done a lot in biblical societies. And it was usually done by weaker people, often by women in scripture, at times in the Christian tradition by Jesus, where he walks into an honor-shame society and he uses a shameful kind of act to undermine uh, those who are quite honorable. Um, And in so doing, in a sense, points out the holes within um, um, the culture of the day. And that's exactly what Quark does at this point. So there's all sorts of good connections there. It um, reminds me of uh, that episode of The Simpsons uh, back in the day where Marge Simpson serves up the three-eyed fish to uh, Montgomery Burns. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, that episode of The Simpsons, but she, she uses 
her place to actually um, uh, to 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 I guess force him to 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 um, uphold his own honor, and, and that's kind of what happens here in this one. Here is that uh, that that whilst an honorable death in combat is what would have aided uh, the, the 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 Klingon who was seeking to take over Quark's house. Um, it, there was no honor in actually killing an unarmed Ferengi on his knees um, and naming. I guess there was some good naming in there. He named it as an execution. Um, his his lack of resistance changed it from from an honorable combat to a dishonorable execution. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's the and that's the radical way of of undermining the honor shame societies. Uh, the Simpsons example is an interesting one. Uh, but the the biblical ones tend to be a lot more gruesome, especially if you dive back back into the Old Testament. And I'm always reminded, and I'm sure Elizabeth, uh, if she listens to this, will will have much more to say about it than me. Um, but Tamar, who is in a very patriarchal society, and she ends up seducing her father-in-law um, and sleeping with him in order to protect herself from. Uh, almost certain death at being uh, accused of being a prostitute or, or, or at least a, a woman of ill repute uh, in, in that age. And that was using um, whatever she had to get ahead. Um, and it poked all sorts of holes in the, um, the culture of the day. And interestingly, Tamar is listed in uh, Jesus' genealogy, which, which is fascinating that, that this woman who, who did something so tricksy, if you like, was able to be recognised. And there are similar themes in the story of Esther as well, I guess, when you look at that story. Yeah. So um, I, I guess it's important to clarify here that what we're talking about is positions of weakness and positions of strength, depending on what cultural norms are, um, rather than, I guess, labels of weak people and strong people. And I think that's 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 another important thing that comes out of this episode is that um, that that um, the the rules of engagement, uh, depending on where the people have come from in this story actually shift um and and so at, at certain times during this this particular story um they're playing by ferengi rules and sometimes they're playing by klingon rules and and we're all sitting outside this actually i guess judging or assessing it by human standards or rules so the, the positions of strength and weakness are actually um changing constantly in this story oh absolutely and they're culturally determined and even the concept of a weak person and a strong person is not really a meaningful category as you watch this episode um as a a bit of a tangent i i don't know if any of your listeners listen to philosophy it's um uh, a little bit of a podcast where will anderson interviews all sorts of comedians and other people and some episodes are good some are not so good but I was listening to a very long, and, and there's a bit of swearing in there, so not for kids, but um, uh, interview with Helen Razor, uh, the, an old uh, uh, well, a, a radio uh, announcer from back in the 90s. She was amazing at um, unpacking all sorts of, um, I guess, views about how people communicate uh, in a society and how their roles, whether they're roles of weakness, victim, or strength, or controlling interest, and all these things are shaped so much by the system they find themselves in. And we see that with Quark. 
in Ferengi, he would be functioning in a certain role. In Klingon, he's very much functioning in another role. Um, but interestingly, on on uh, Deep Space Nine, he has to move in and out of different roles um, based on who he's interacting with. And that can do your head in, but at the same time, it proves that systems are not immutable and they can change and often should change. So I, I like that stuff. Yeah, I have enjoyed a number of the Wheelosophy um, podcasts. I haven't heard that particular one, so I'll have to check it out. Helen Rose is the only person I've heard recently in pop culture actually know the difference between liberal and left, um, um, which is fascinating. Yep. Most people just combine liberals and leftists into the same lump and they're not the same. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. Now, it's interesting you mentioned politics and we'll, we'll try and steer clear of politics, but there's a lot of uh, uh, face-saving um, uh, that happens in this episode. Um, and, and I mean, I, I guess in, in Australia, in the news at the moment, we've got a political situation where, you know, there's a whole scenario where uh, they're attempting to, to, to work out where, where a system worked and where a system didn't work and what was a vulnerable person and, and what was a, a, um, a, 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 a breach in security. And, and so there's some really, really interesting dynamics with this in terms of interpreting what it means for us and exposing, I guess, what it means when we're in a position where, where that honour shame is forcing us um, as a society or as individuals to, to save face by putting a particular slant or narrative on what's happening. And that happens for Quark a couple of times in opposite ways. The first time when the brother comes to visit and says, how did my brother die? And he tells him one story. And then the widow comes to visit and how did my brother die? He has to tell the other story. And 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 and, and both times it's about face saving, not only for Quark, but for the widow and the brother as well. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, and sadly, so often face saving is not a, an attempt to get at uh, honesty or, or some kind of truth, or even to protect um, the general well-being of the community. And whatever you say about honor-shame societies, at least there was the, the, the sense in which um, the, the face-saving was to protect a wider group, your family perhaps, or your clan. Um, it seems like today a lot of face-saving is to protect just yourself or at least your political um, allies and that's that's sad i think and it almost seems like in the midst of this story the truth doesn't matter like it doesn't matter whether or not quark killed him um or he fell on his own blade what what mattered is which narrative was actually going to carry forward and which set of consequences were going to come out of of any particular narrative well I, i had a note will that um this is a telling vignette if you like of how myths are made Look at them. They're consumed with morbid fascination. They can't wait to get in here. They all want to know what happened. Was it a bar fight? What started it? And most of all, who killed the Klingon? But no one killed him. It was an accident. I killed him in a bar fight. What? You heard me. I killed him in self-defense. But where is the profit in lying about a simple drunken... Look at that crowd. How long has it been since you've seen that many customers waiting to get in here? This is an opportunity to turn everything around. This is insane, brother. What if his family comes looking for the killer? What if they want revenge? If push comes to shove, we tell the truth and no harm done. Um, the, the, there is some truth and there's different stories that go around and 
one one side of the story or one way of telling the story, if you like, becomes dominant and and mythic. But it doesn't necessarily erase uh, all the other ways of looking at things. And I, I know it's a difficult topic in Australia, but but the myth of Anzac Day um, has really only developed its current dominant meaning over the last thirty, maybe forty years in Australia. Um, and when when I arrived in Australia. Um, some 35 years ago, Anzac Day was something, but it wasn't anywhere like the dominant kind of um, nation-building myth uh, that it is now. Um, and even today, there are people who say, hang on, that's not how it really happened. And they sometimes argue that from history, but sometimes they say, and should we have this as our founding myth? I don't want to go into the, the, the pros and cons of this, but the dominant myth doesn't always replace all the other ways of telling. Um, and so Quark um, either honourably battling or becoming lucky in a bar fight doesn't really matter. It's how it's told, and then how it's told against how it's told. And I think there's some, I mean, there's some really interesting things in that in relation to uh, Australia and, and I guess other colonial histories. Um, you know, we, we talk about governors and we've got statues and we have, we have um, monuments made to, to colonial heroes um, within, you know, um, putting that in inverted commas, um, who, who did um, horrific things in relation to um, taming the land, um, affecting uh, first peoples, um, and and so we 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 only tell the part of the story that suits our agenda at a particular time. Yeah, and and I one thing I find central to my faith as a Christian is so many of the stories, especially um, in the the sort of Jesus narratives, the stories about Jesus, are actually telling those other stories. The ones don't quite fit, so it, it almost trains you to go and find the other stories. And if you go and speak to most Indigenous people and lots of other people in Australia, you'll find the other views of these so-called heroes of the colonial enterprise. But you need to go looking for them, and you need to listen carefully when that they're, they're told. Um, but one of the key parts of my Christian faith is to say, okay, this is the the, the dominant myth, or this is what everyone's saying. What are the other people saying? And I think that's um, a really useful way that the the New Testament, the Synoptic Gospels, and and John are structured in that we actually don't just get one agendered um, viewpoint, but we get we get a number of very different viewpoints, and we see points where they they are quite focused and agree, but some other areas where they actually um, are showing a very different interpretation or understanding of the of the Christ story. So so there's there there is that um, I guess learning in in delving into the biblical narrative and other narratives as well where there's the opportunity to recognize that um that just about every well every story told is actually told from a certain perspective uh, and understood um f from from that perspective to to make a, a particular point or agenda yeah absolutely and and, and that's almost like interpretive theory 101 people stuff's told uh, what, I, what I would hesitate to say is you can't get beyond or you can't get through or you can't find common ground across stories. 
I think there are some common grounds, even in the biblical narratives. So we have four different stories and they disagree on certain emphases in Jesus' life, especially John sort of stands out in a lot of plays. But then there are some coherences as well, and that's really important to be able to name the, the resonances and the coherences as well as the disjunctions, to use long words, or the, the, the times when they they kind of uh, make sense together and the times when they don't. I'm particularly interested in delving into the concept in this one of the uh, of the, the Christ-like or, or sacrificial figure of Quark in this, where he actually uh, makes a decision, uh, I think a very risky decision, given the battlists were out and uh, he was on the Klingon homeworld, far from any sense of safety, um, that he actually um, is prepared to lay down his life for the sake of of uh, of this Klingon house. It's hard when you read the biblical stories about Jesus to see he can come. Jesus can come across as quite noble and 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 almost sublime in his response. But I'm sure that that there's also a great deal of fear and trepidation in Jesus facing uh, what ended up being a political execution. And that has given rise to what sometimes uh, theologians call the idiot or fool tradition um, within Christian thought, but also within literature. I think Dostoevsky is the most famous relatively recent example where there is someone who may not be noble, may not be good in the sense that Jesus was good, but finds themselves in a position to suffer or even die um, as a way of um, uh, showing up uh, the inherent evil or, or, or cruelty or, or failure of, of a, a bigger system, a culture. And in this case, Quark uh, is a kind of an idiot Christ figure um, because he, he volunteers um, his life. He's calculated. He's calculated. He, he, I, I'm sure if he knew it was a sure thing that he would die, he would have run away. Um, but it's a calculated risk um, that unlocks and undermines the, the honor structure of the Klingon uh, legal system. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot in there. So whilst we have the, uh, the, the role of pilot being played here by, uh, by Chancellor Gowron, um, and we've got the crowd of, of Klingons who are trying to determine whether or not um, he should be executed or not. Um, uh, we, we certainly we have um, uh, a very interventionist. It's actually Gowron who stops the blade and says, no, this is not honourable, um, which is quite different to the pilot figure who washes his hands and says, I don't want to yeah. be responsible. Yeah, I agree entirely on that. And, and I mean... <sighs> actually think in, in the history of human institutions and power and stuff, Pilate's actually the more, the representation of Pilate in the Gospels is a more faithful presentation of leaders. How can we avoid the tough decision and fob it off on someone else so that at least if it goes pear-shaped, we won't be blamed? We talked about face-saving. I think Pilate does the most amazing face-saving. And in this, and this is probably where, where the... Uh, this episode of Deep Space Nine div diverges from uh, biblical narratives is that in some senses the honour culture is rescued as Galron steps in and goes, ah, there is a little bit of a hole here, but the deeper honourable thing is to do uh, is to do this and, and to protect Quark, right? Um, whereas that's often not the case in yeah. honour yeah. patriarchal power systems. 
they they are honor and patriarchal on the surface, but really there's a whole bunch of face saving and intrigue. And we do see that later with Galron. We also see it earlier as well. Um, so the way that Galron handles Worf's situation, for example, is actually entirely different. I mean, he's forced to um, to to cover up um, the 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 treachery and corruption of a of another Klingon um, and and face his own yeah. exile and discommendation. So so we 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 see this story run both ways, I guess, True at different indeed. times. Um, so well, I think we've probably talked about Klingon culture enough. Um, let's um, switch our target to the Ferengis. Um, I have found myself asking the question, where is the profit in this for for Quark? Uh, I mean, reputation is good. And he starts out by saying, you know, having uh, being a hero um, in, a, in a fight will, will bring people into the bar. But he loses sight of that very quickly and gets caught up oh, in his own that's story. That's definitely the case. He? But when you're plucked out of... Um... Uh, Deep Space Nine and find yourself on Kronos, then uh, I guess you have to re-evaluate your priorities. I think that's probably what happened. Um, when you said, what's the profit? Uh, this is my kind of day job jumping in. I'm like, profit as in P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Where's the profit? Who's the profit in this? I'm like, oh, I hadn't <laughs> thought about it. where you're headed with this. But of course, and it's surprising how quick he gives in to to the divorce and uh, so that Grilka can get her money back. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting kind of question. So, yeah. Um. One of the things I love about this particular episode too is that often in Star Trek uh, you'll have a, a, a bit of a vignette like this where the story will run its course and uh, the main characters, of course, will be resolved and returned back to their normal space and you'll never see the... The, the others again but of course we get Grilka back uh in season five i think it is um when uh she um requires a divorce um so the divorce that's been sort of informally carried out by the slap in the face without warning um is needs to be formalized um, um and um and by this stage wharf is on deep space nine and has to enter into a bit of a Cyrano de Bergerac kind of role with Quark um, as he attempts to to convince her not to divorce him yes. because of, and uh, that's, because um, of love. Uh, yes, good good use of Cyrano de Bergerac. I agree entirely. And obviously the, the stories continue on and complex. And they, they appear to be first watch, yeah. We've also got a, a new rule of acquisition in this one. Is it 286? Well, yes, it? before we get on to that, I mean, I was wondering whether we should have a, a general rule acquisition. I, I, I don't know whether it's there. You can't make profit if you're dead. I don't know if that appears anywhere else, but it seems to be a motivating factor from Quark that um, when, when your life hey. is on the line, you have to do that. I, he doesn't name it as a rule of acquisition in his episode, but does say... There's an old Ferengi saying about discretion being the better part of valor. Which I think is probably a, a, a human expression. Well, I was looking at that, and, then, and he follows it up uh, immediately with, uh, like, sticks and stones. So it seems like um, maybe Ferengi culture is, is, is on Earth already. Maybe they are the little green yep. men as a... Well, they, right. they were so here in the 1940s, weren't they? Even though I think that's a Shakespeare origin one. Correct me if I'm wrong, anyone else, but um, um, goes back that far at least and sticks yes. and stones. But maybe they, 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 there's future 
um, comings of the Ferengi to Earth to try and get some profit. Um, but, but that said, you're, you're, you are absolutely some, right. Some um, rule of acquisition 286, when Morn leaves, it's all over. No, but it, now that can't be a rule of acquisition. No, but it should uh, be. Morn cannot be that significant. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I look, uh, and I do love the character of Morn. He's one of my favourite characters, um, and uh, I am looking forward to the episode uh, "Who Mourns for Morn," which, which is coming which, out, which actually gives him the centre role. It's got some sort of um, even though he's resonances not in it, with so. this episode, I think, in, in terms of um, people yes. playing other roles and being surprised by them. Um, yeah, he, he, he's a strong silent type, isn't he, Morn? That's right. Yep, yep. Um, and and a very important um, member of the uh, the the Deep Space Nine uh, Quarks Bar. Um, Just a couple uh, more comments. Sorry, I don't know how soon you want to get onto the B story. Just a couple more comments. Just about Quarks' um, reaction. I, I sorry, sorry, interaction with the Klingons in order to find path through the honor shame society they talk about dirty ledgers and financial tricks and actually this was again something uh, the research into the ancient near east as they call it the first century palestine has come up with many many peasants and poorer people in that time would would use little tricks like this under declaring their income pretending they didn't have as many livestock as they did to to protect themselves and their families from from what were quite um, terrible taxation by the local authorities and then ultimately Rome. And and um, and we might look at that and say that was dishonest, but that kind of dishonesty is a way of resisting, a way of finding out. Um, and uh, I don't know what happens on Fringenar, but, but uh, I like to think sometime, sometimes that this is... Uh, a society that, that decided this was the way to go to kind of trick people and took it too far, but but you know has a kind of a peasant resistance uh, basis. Probably doesn't, but you know it's it's a nice thought. We have that um, fascinating parable in uh, it's in Luke's gospel. I don't know if it appears anywhere else of the dishonest manager or the dishonest steward, the one who discovers that he's about to be yeah. fired, and so instead he actually. Goes and cuts deals with all of his uh, all of his masters or, or you know um, creditors, um, and um, and and does so. And 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 interestingly, in this this parable, the point is that Jesus is urging people to to make friends um, by by doing this. So that, that it is actually an urge to to emulate the well, dishonest. And part manager, of what's happening in that um, story in is he's. By by doing deals, favourable deals to other people, he actually builds up a, 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 a share of of people who owe him in a sense, um, uh, even though they really owe, owe his owner, or sorry, his boss. Um, but that builds up his honour in the sense in the wider culture. So he has a greater deal of honour across the town, and so it makes it more difficult, even impossible, for someone to move against him because he has all these. Uh, networks of of uh, reciprocation, um, and we look at that and go, "That's a bit weird." And we watch movies like The Godfather, where there's this kind of um, what 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 The Godfather works on is is having people owe him um, um, favors, and that's how he maintains control. And actually, that's yes. how the ancient world worked. It was all this kind of moving um, 
holding your honor, but also having people own owe you stuff. And if you were going to be powerful in the village, everyone or most people would owe you something, either financial or in terms of some other honor. And that's how you moved around. It wasn't so much directly about just getting money. Which so as you say, perhaps the Ferengi have been around for a lot longer than we can um, we, we we possibly know. I mean, this is certainly. Uh, it could be referred to as the Ferengi parable. Uh, absolutely. I, li- I like that thought. I mean, overarching blatant capitalism, which seems to be a, a thing, wasn't around back in the ancient world, but certainly these deal-making and subterfuge. Although some of the uh, collaborating tax collectors might have made good Ferengi in uh, the Jesus Disciple crew. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, unless there's something else in the A story you want to cover, it's probably good timing to move across to the B story and have a look at uh, Miles yeah. and Keiko. One small thing, um, hand off my thigh rather than shattering every <laughs> bone in your body. He's still a sexist bugger, Quark, and I, I do say I like um, Quark episodes and Ferengi episodes. I, I don't mean that I like him particularly. He's a bit of a sleazebag, as so many of them are. But I like the way that the story can work even through sleaze bags and stuff, and 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 people who uh, are really not that endearing of characters, and you probably wouldn't want to rely on most times. Um, and that's a powerful biblical narr- narrative, and certainly a Christian narrative that we we think we can dismiss people whose character is less than it should be. Um, and certainly we need to hold people to account if they're doing the wrong thing or, or acting in the wrong way. But the mystery of the gospel is that um, goodness can come in, in and through and around those people. Uh, yeah, that's powerful in my, my view. Treasures of gold held in clay jars. That's the uh, that's the, the epistle narrative that we get. Very nice. So, um, yeah, look, I, I, I agree entirely that um, there's something um, endearing about the character of Clark um, and growing, uh, as I said in, earlier in this, this um, discussion, um, from that two-dimensional figure that we get at the beginning, the what's in it for me. He's now kind of broadening the story of what might be in it for him to relationships to, to might want to say, I was going to say love, but lust or whatever, um, but also thinking even beyond that, starting to go, well, you know, what's, how can I be, how can I profit each people or other people in this scenario and how does the profit of the community actually um, place me in a position uh, of better strength or, or, or position? Well, we're, let's have a look at the second half. Um, so uh, intertwined with this and and so often as happens, um, there's some creative thought gone into how does this work. So, so we've got uh, a widow in the first story trying to um, use what power and cultural power she has to be able to find her way, uh, and then the story of, of I guess, disempowerment, that, that, that uh, Keiko's marriage to Miles means that her career has, has come to an end. Um, and we get some some uh, unusual wisdom from Dr. Bashir in this and, and the beginnings of, of that new relationship um, as well. Yeah, and there's some insightful writing. So obviously the Keiko storyline, the Keiko Miles storyline is more serious, more normal, more human, if you like. Um, it's not so so starkly opposed to our current ways of relating to each other. But... In, in an episode about economics and ledgers trying to undo the Klingon world, 
Um, it's Bashir who comes up with the economics of Keiko's happiness. Well, it's been my experience that during any serious disagreement, a smile and sweet words will buy you two hours. Flowers buy you a week. An arboretum, well, that's at least two months. But in the end, you still have to solve the underlying problem. I thought an arboretum would give her a chance to continue her studies. Help her find something to do with her time. Like a hobby. Exactly. Exactly why it won't work. You can't ask her to turn her profession into a hobby. Would you be satisfied just pottering around in a workshop, building nano circuit boards and playing with tricorders? I suppose not. You're chief of operations. I'm a doctor, and Keiko's a botanist. The hydroponics bay buys two months, but in the end, you still have to solve the underlying problem. Yep. But it's phrased in an economic kind of uh, way. There's two months for this, two days for that. Very transactional, um, yeah. Yeah, it's transactional, and that's really, I think that's very clever writing. Yeah, I, um, I, I was very yeah. impressed with the B story, and I hesitate to even call it the B story. I mean, like, there's a sense in which the other one has, has got the title of the name, and it's it's quite strong, but this one this one has an equal level of depth and importance. Um, and, and it's interesting we talk about the more normal relationship um, between um, uh, Miles and Keiko, but in the Star Trek world, this is actually the exception to the rule. I mean, we we really haven't ex- had any experience of a married couple navigating life in Starfleet until we hit Miles and and Keiko. Um, previously, it's it's focused on the career or leaving family behind or or making sacrifices. Yeah. But but this 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 is a couple who are actually attempting to to um, make it work uh, in this environment. Yeah, absolutely. And um, um, I think that's true. And maybe there's a default assumption in, in Star Trek from, from even the, the original series. They probably didn't go to it in detail, but that if you're going to be on Star Trek just as if you've got a career in the military or something like that, your only choice is to live two distinct lives. Uh, I've got a good friend who's a who's a, was in the Navy for many, many years, and for 20 years, um, his wife and him had to live parallel lives, um, and they're learning how to live together again, because um, that's in a way so much. Uh, and you're right, uh, Keiko and Miles are one of the few times that they are brought together and have to work on how they, they live. It. And I think they thought it would be easier, if you like, because Deep Space Nine isn't a travelling starship, but as it turns out, um, it's now at the front and things are different. That's right. And, and I mean, we, we've really travelled with this couple. I mean, they, they started out in their relationship in Next Generation. Um, and we, we, we see Data um, taking the role of being father of the bride. Um, so he gives Keiko away in the marriage ceremony. Uh, Worf is midwife to um, their, their first child. Um, and um, and so there's there's some there, there's there they're really a I guess a an evolving Star Trek family that we're seeing come through from the beginning all the way through. Yeah, and it's it's good. I don't love all the episodes with it, but I do like this one. I think it's good. Um, and there's some interesting hints there, and I think it portrays. So so there's obviously a, a great upheaval and trauma as as the Dominion becomes the great enemy and war looming and all those kinds of things and there's some signs of trauma maybe even some kind not quite ptsd but but 
some of the way Keiko acts is very effective. It's just got this kind of dissociative reaction where the focus is there and then it goes. And um, there are certainly signs to look out for amongst loved ones in the wake of trauma, but or at any time, kind of, um, yeah, just going out of focus a bit. And I thought it was really well acted at those points. Yeah. Yep. So Rosalind uh, Chao is uh, the name of the actress who plays uh, Keiko O'Brien um, and um, plays that alongside Cole Meany, who is um, uh, Chief Miles O'Brien. But, yeah, certainly, like, and you can see, I think the acting is really, really good there where, when Miles is really trying, he puts on the dinner and he, he's he's doing this uh, mm. this over the top, uh, most uh, uh, fabulous wife in the galaxy um, day, um, and it works. Um, um, Bashir is absolutely right; it works. You can see that it works. It lifts her spirits. It brings her out of her her funk. And then, then the next morning, he's leaving, and she's staying in the apartment by herself. And and you can see immediately, you know, without a word, that she's actually. That that's 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 painful. That there's grief in that for her. Absolutely, and I don't want to go. I'm not a clinical psychologist by any means, but there's something about let's say there's a listlessness or even perhaps a depression in a sense, um, or at least signs of that in Keiko's character in this episode, um, undiagnosed to be sure. But uh, but there's something going on there, and. Um, I, I think when people do suffer from, from certain types of mental illness at certain times, there is the treatment of the symptom, there is the addressing what's going on through medication, cognitive behavioural therapy, a bunch of different things. But there's a deep truth that if there's a deep, I guess, lack of purpose or happiness or an underlying problem, as, as uh, Bashir says, it's very hard to, to, to move out of it in a sort of a permanent way. So um, not don't want to say too much about that because mental illness is obviously very, very complex, but I certainly know of people who there's the treatment of the symptoms, which is very, very important, but there's also then trying to dig down into some, some deep, I guess, causes that, 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 um, that need to be addressed if, if healing is going to progress in any way. What I also liked about this episode was the way that that, that mental health was actually dealt with in community. Um, so we have this scene where where Miles comes yeah. in to talk to his commanding officer, Commander Sisko, um, and immediately um, Dax knows what's going on. Um, Kira doesn't, um, and 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 at one stage I think she comments must be some kind of human problem, and and is dismissed summarily by Cisco to to get out whilst he's yes. going to privately talk to, but but the community is aware that there's a problem, and and not just mm. kind of stoically or or, or 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 embarrassedly sort of stepping away from it, but actually actively engaging in in that um that that is supportive and the same for Bashir's role so Bashir is is clearly aware um of of the the situation and is prepared to speak into it so the strength of the community yeah. is there so that that Miles and Keiko aren't dealing with this um entirely on their own that's right and and some of your previous correspondents have identified correctly how naive young and sleazy sexist Bashir is early on but he does grow um, and he does have more to him than, than he first comes and even though his presentation in 
the way he describes it isn't necessarily the best way to describe it. There is a sense where he's he's got some insights and wisdom there. There's a there's a real invitation too. So in that that scene um, where um, Miles is looking at the arboretum and the plans for it, um, and he's trying to fix the situation for Keiko, um, Bashir comes in with his usual curiosity and is looking over his shoulder, and Miles kind of tries to hide what he's doing, and then he thinks it again and says, "Actually, I'm going to ask for an opinion." Um, and he doesn't get the response that he wants, but it's the response that he needs. Um, and I think there's yep. a there's a beginning of a deepening of the relationship here between Miles and um, and Julian as well. I think you're right, and and I like I like your insight, and I hadn't picked it up myself about caring for people with whether it's a diagnosed mental illness or, or just going through rough drops isn't uh, something that is. Always a one-on-one. I love the idea that it's a community. And so often, what happens is people back away when they when they um, encounter a mental health situation that's in 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 a family or or maybe at one step away from them. When in fact, um, what's really needed is is actually, um, I guess, to to sensitively and carefully, but 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 offer to step up and certainly to accept invitations to participate um, in community, in a communal response to mental health. And and actually, I don't know whether, I think we're probably heading towards the end of the episode. If I Getting can close. Throw that in, yep. But um, um, is this episode, as in the House of Quark, uh, this is my last little think, about gender roles conflicting with Federation and Klingon ideals? And obviously it's, it's pretty clear in um, the Klingon storyline, the quite Klingon gender roles, who can be the head of a house, all those kinds of things. It's pretty obvious. But, but I think there's gen, gender role expectations or relational role expectations in the Federation, which are also not ideal. And um, in the sense, Federation represents the highest ideals of liberalism. Um, and it's possible to be... Uh, an adventurer to seek knowledge and science and, and diversity and all those kind of things, but you're largely required to do that as an individual. Yes. Thus, all the the captains and the the officers on on previous on on, on the Enterprise and later on Voyager and stuff are required to do it as individuals because the higher ideal is the individual with a team is searching out knowledge and, and, and it's all about self-fulfillment and you're allowed to, it's a pure meritocracy where the individual is allowed to go as far as their skills and abilities and drive lets them. And there is a, but in this episode, yeah, you're right. And in this, but in this episode, we realize that relationships and families are more complex and yep. you can have this whole idea about the individual, but it makes no sense if it doesn't take into account the family. Um, or the relationships of, of whatever way we describe those. So, and and, sorry, and certainly there, there's, a, I guess, a, a clear um, a understanding or paradigm where if you're an individual and you're a part of a team, then you have a greater ability to commit uh, more fully to, to the agenda and direction of the team. But if you're in yeah. a family, then your your loyalty becomes divided if the agenda of the team or the direction of the team is actually different to your commitment to your to your family. Um, and I mean, certainly, you know, uh, th- this occurs in in ministry often. Like, there's a sense in which, you know, um, I I kind of uh, 
uh, um, have to bear in mind um, that that I've I've got to get to this program or be involved in this activity, but also my kids are graduating from this or playing in this band, and and so there is a real complexity around navigating um, the allegiance to team work vocation and family when when we're we're split in these ways um and 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 star trek does paint this this period this position that that the superior position for team engagement is to be a single individual or at least to flip from relationship to relationship but yeah and and that's that's seen as a sacrifice but a necessary sacrifice and may not be the only way and and maybe as, so I often say I'm a natural conservative, even though my politics are not particularly conservative, but there's something about conserving deep relationships, whether they're family or, or other, and I don't just mean traditional family structures, that, that we need to make sure we are aware of as we seek uh, dynamic and radical politics or engagement. In yeah, absolutely. And and we hear that we hear that in Australian politics often, you know, the number of politicians recently who have said, they're going to give up their position uh, as a minister in a cabinet or, or running for politics because they want to spend time with their family. And unfortunately, it's not unfortunate, actually, it's systematically that that is often more heard from um, female uh, members of parliament than male members of parliament who find that the time commitment of being away and being um, engaged in places other than family really causes them to to question whether or not they they're actually using their time in the in the and, best and, way and we're sometimes cynical and i know um, is that just an excuse for something more serious is is what goes on and i need to check myself on that and go okay now this is genuinely what's going on and, and we need to respect that yep um yep no that's good great conversation Bill. thank you for well, inviting me that's okay. We've uh, we've had a great opportunity to be able to explore, uh, I guess, um, uh, uh, the 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 human uh, relationship honor code, the Ferengi uh, way of uh, ledger of of financial accountability, as well as the Klingon code of honor in combat. And so that's given us some. Um, a lot of really interesting things to look at um, and um, and made some really uh, good connections to to faith theology and relationships in the process so um, I'm, I'm very happy with that uh, um, episode one thing that I uh, did want to call out to was to just to follow up with a conversation I had with Philip Menzies in episode one of season three it's always good to sort of come back to I did watch the uh, movie first contact over the last couple of days uh, and uh, Philip and I were musing over the theme for the defiant as it's introduced in episode one. Uh, and fascinatingly, uh, I, as I watched and listened for what the theme was when the defiant appears in that episode of First Contact, uh, I, I could not help but hear the mistakable uh, horn clarion call of the Klingon um, uh, uh, musical phrase that da 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 dun 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 da that that kind of uh, and and the reason they've done that is because at the helm of the defiant in that battle with the Borg in first contact is Worf. So very fascinating to see the way in which um, they have gone about um, uh, using the musical scores uh, to um, to to denote. Uh, different characters in different places, and I, I love that uh, Philip always takes us in that direction. Absolutely, and I, I like the musical analysis, and I need to get more into it. Um, 
um, and Philip, who I haven't met, that did a great job. Great. Yeah, great. So um, we're um, that's all we've got time for today on our episode of Deep Faith Nine, uh, the House of Quark, um, um, and. Um, we're uh, looking forward to uh, coming back next week uh, to have a look at the episode Equilibrium. Uh, and this is a fascinating episode that will allow us to have a deeper insight into um, trill culture um, and uh, the nature of uh, the trill symbiote joining. Uh, and my wife, Amanda Nicholas, will be joining um, me for that conversation as we explore this uh this uh, uh, episode called Equilibrium. Uh, until then, next week, um, I thank you, Niall, for joining us this week. Thank you. Uh, and uh, until then, um, we've been the Deep Faith Nine podcast, and you can find us, as I said, in all the usual places, and um, enjoy your Star Trekking uh, as you continue forward.